Welcome to the Georgetown Literary Festival 2021, Microcosmos, and to this conversation with Tim Parks. A formal introduction to Tim Parks can be found on the back sleeve of any one of his many books. I have the privilege of taking a more intimate approach. I first met Tim Parks in 1993, and though our meetings since then have been few and very far between, the memory of my first meeting with Tim remains vivid, affectionate, and instructive. By the banks of the Malacca River, with the legendary water lizard Arjuna bombing in and out of the waters, Tim Parks spoke of word music, the framing of novels, and all the possibilities contained in a sentence yet to be written, transforming my understanding of literature altogether. And of the secrets of Samuel Beckett, who has since become my Desert Island author. Over the years, I have followed Tim Parks' writing with an ardour that some close to me might describe as near-religious. His brilliantly crafted novels, books of non-fiction, including his most recent Italian Life and The Hero's Way, his indispensable essays in the New York Review and London Review of Books that instruct me to be a more careful reader. And it is through his hand that I was bequeathed the gift of writers such as Italo Calvino, Alberto Moravio, Antonio Tabucchi, and the oracle at the center of my own work in myth and ritual, Roberto Calasso. His translation of Machiavelli's The Prince, published just a few years ago, made me wish that this was the translation at hand when I, as a young undergraduate, studied and became enamored with this philosopher of the Renaissance. In that early meeting with Tim, I mentioned that Joseph Brodsky had referred to him, then still a young novelist, as the best British author writing today. Tim replied, he must have been drunk. The late, great Brodsky might well be vindicated in his praise today. Following on from the title of one of his essay collections, we speak of, sometimes dance around, many things in this conversation, entitled Travel, Translation and Other Diversions. I thank Tim Parks for being a part of this conversation and thank you for joining us for the Georgetown Literary Festival. Tim Parks, uh, thank you very much for joining me uh, for this uh, Georgetown Literary Festival conversation. Uh, it's a great uh, shame that uh, we can't be talking face to face, but uh, given the brave new world we're living in, it seems to be <laughs> the trend uh, for the time being. Uh, so perhaps thank I can you. lurch into the questions. Yes. It's great to see you anyway. Um, yeah. Obviously, we all regret not, not, not actually being there, but... Uh... But we'll do our best. Yes. Well, you're all Malaysia hands, so we hope that uh, uh, we'll, bring, we'll be able to bring you back. Uh, just to, to let you know that your books arrive always very, very much on time on our shelves. Uh, so Fantastic. I'm participating quite a, a fan base uh, here. Uh, but uh, we're called uh, travel, um, uh, travel literature and other diversions. I think our, our title. Um, so let me begin by asking you uh, that we were commemorating the seven, 700th death anniversary uh, of Dante. Uh, and I recall reading one of uh, your essay reviews to Helen Back, which later became a title for one of your very fine collection of essays. 
where you point to the power of allegory as being so important to, to, to Dante. Uh, and what do you think uh, continues to animate Dante, in particular for translators um, uh, who so conscientiously work on him in a variety of forms and meters, and especially into the English language, uh, what he's continues, uh, what continues, what is his appeal uh, up till today? You think? Uh, Dante. Dante is probably probably the only figure in Italy who 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 never divides people. You know, Italians tend to be divided over almost every historical figure. Um, Dante, fortunately, is right there at the beginning and. Uh, and everybody loves him. Uh, when you read the when you read the kind of scholarly uh, analyses of the Inferno and, and uh, the Commedia in general, uh, you do see this this attempt to explain it all in allegorical terms. You know, the the, the poet going through hell is is sort of every man, and the guide who's guiding him is not just Virgil, but is is sort of human wisdom, and and then Beatrice is is sort of divine love. Uh, but really, actually, I think the, the the comedia works because because it's actually not simply an allegory, because the poet is actually Dante uh, going yeah. through hell, and and Dante saying, "I am a great poet." You know, I mean, I mean that he he was uh, pretty much megalomaniac. In terms of his convictions of, of his brilliance, I mean, right at the beginning of the poem, we remember Homer and uh, Horace and uh, and Virgil himself Virgil. and others accept Dante as one of the you know few great poets <laughs> of all time. I mean, if you did that today, people would be laughing laughing you out of the room, as it were. So one of the fantastic things about about um, about the Commedia is this tension between uh, a book that's about, you know, the, the great things, uh, sin, virtue, what mm. happens after you die and so on. And at the same time, it's about everybody Dante's ever known and whether he wants to put them in hell or heaven uh, mm. and, and his discussions with them. And we remember that he, he wrote the book in exile. Um, he had been kicked out of Florence uh, during some factional uh, trouble, which is a typical Italian problem. Itali Italy's all, always about factions and about people being excluded or included in government. Or, he was kicked out. Uh, life for him was Florence, and hell was anything outside Florence. So, you know, the people in hell are not so much dead as outside Florence, you know, and they all want to be back. Uh, and he was writing the poem in the hope that he could flatter the right people to get back into Florence. Um, and he keeps changing the people he flatters as he goes through the poem because the people in Florence are changing. So one of the great things about the poem is, is, is you know, that it's really about life as it's lived in Italy today, even though it's theoretically in hell. As for the translation, uh, well, I mean, the first thing is it's a fantastic... It, it's a fantastic piece of literature, and so it presents itself as a challenge. But I think the thing that that really sort of becomes an obsession of translators is this form of verse that he wrote it in. 
he wrote it in in little triplets, little three line sections. Okay, where the first line and the last line rhyme, and the middle line rhymes with the first line of the next triplet. Okay, and each line is self contained. He almost never runs on to the next line. Okay. So the effect of it is that the poem is actually incredibly fast. It kind of trips along really fast. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is if you're going through hell, you have to keep moving. Because if you stop to contemplate suffering, it's too awful. And in fact, frequently, Virgil, who's the guide, keeps saying to Dante, look, don't stop. You know, don't start feeling pity for these people. Keep moving. He actually says it. So the the verse has to keep moving to get you through. So it, it's a verse that evokes suffering, but it also sort of moves suffering aside constantly. And that's a huge challenge uh, for any translator, you know, to get that kind of effect, the evocation and the movement. Um, it, it's a huge challenge. And and I think that's I think people do it because you can't do it. You know, if you can do something, it sort of ceases to become interesting. But but when you can almost do it, but you never really can, then uh, then that makes it fascinating. Do you think there's a moral hold he still has on our imaginations? You know, the, the I wouldn't call it a moral hold, but there's something that happens in the in the Inferno particularly, that I think did become central to, to Western thinking. And that's this. Dante set out to do this poem about going through hell where he would show where different people had ended up. Okay. Then he starts contemplating the suffering of these people. Um, and, and it begins uh, particularly, I think, when he considers the suffering uh, Paolo and Francesca, the two adulterers who are, who are in hell. And he starts to show pity for them. Okay. So you have this tension between our values today that we don't really think that Paolo and Francesca really deserve uh, to be punished for all eternity for this. And at the same time, our religion uh, and its rigid precepts, which demands that they suffer. So you begin to get this tension between a more modern position, which is forgiving and loving and so on and so forth, uh, or that simply doesn't recognize that this is a sin, uh, okay, uh, or a crime. And then on the other hand, uh, this set of rules. Uh, you know, and, and if we want, if we're going to talk about it later, you, you can bring that into the present where, where we now have an even greater tension between present uh, virtues as we understand them, like well, you know, the modern world considers that it, that it has now reached sort of maximum virtue in its acceptance of more or less every form of behavior um, and, and its complete condemnation of the past. Okay. Uh, so, you know, today if people went to, went to heaven they'd say to God, look, God, you've got to, you've got to abolish hell. You know, we can't leave those people in hell. Uh, we wouldn't accept it. And, and that really begins with Dante. I mean, I think Dante pretty much destroys hell because he just shows that it's a completely unacceptable idea. Uh, so I think, this, that, this... I think that does still resonate with people. 
you know, this idea of virtue, we, we will return to it uh, a little later, yeah, uh, because it, 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 you know, it's so much a part of, of what's seizing our, uh, our, our, our state Absolutely. of being at the moment. Um, but uh, I want to draw you to uh, the theme of this uh, festival, which is microcosmos, a uh, reference to Bartok, um, but little universes. Uh, you're well known to be a rather difficult and complicated writer. Uh, and, you know, these little universes, uh, that's widely acknowledged, I think, uh, but these little universes settle in your work and you get all these resonances of uh, predecessors, Beckett and, and, and Thomas Bernhardt. And so many of your interviews and your conversations, you talk uh, so much about, about, about words. Um, uh, but in this age of the declarative, yeah, rather than the elusive sentence um, in literature and so much in uh, so much else in collective life, uh, where would you locate words and language uh, today? Well, in terms of microcosmos, let's say that that uh, it's obvious that all of us have our have our particular backgrounds and the particular texts and the particular places that we're, that we're coming from. Um, not only the environment we grew up in, but the particular books that we first fell in love with or the, or the books that were important to us at, at formative moments. And let's say sort of more generally that, that in a culture that's still, or a community that's still very much in contact, contact with its past and with its masterpieces, uh, like the Italians with Dan Dick, um, then you can very quickly, as a member of that community, evoke very large and complex areas of, of feeling and emotion by simply alluding to something. You know, the, the wasteland is the, is the classic example of, of, of this, where, you know, we, we know that Eliot uh, throws out these fragments from, from previous texts. Uh, and on the one hand, he's saying how much the world is fragmented, but on the other, actually... He's showing how, how strong the community still is if, if these fragments still have an effect on people. You know, if you throw those fragments out today, very likely nobody, nobody will even notice that they're fragments from, from previous texts. So elusiveness very much has to do with, it seems to me, with a, a community of, of, of culture that, that, that is still very much in con contact, where one word can recall like this is a word that, that is used in the Bible in a certain way, or this is a this is a phrase that is used, like that way of turning the phrase is typically Shakespearean or typically biblical. So and, and that's very powerful. I mean liter literature can become very powerful when you have that level of density. Obviously if you move into a a situation where we want to be globalized and we want to be immediately reading every text from different cultures all at the same time, uh, you get into a kind of strange, a strange form of provincialism. You could call it a sort of chronological provincialism, where we only know about the present, you know, the latest book from Nigeria or the latest book from mm -hmm. India, uh, and, and we're not connecting that to the past and so on. Uh, and and so all that elusiveness in language becomes much more difficult because you're not appealing to a to a home community. And it, and in, indeed, the idea of home community has become a sort of bad idea at the moment. You know. Uh, 
So uh, this is the world we find ourselves in. I'm not saying that one can't have wonderful literature in, a, in this kind of situation, but it's a different kind of literature. Uh, and obviously, somebody like me grew up in that other world, you know, grew up studying... Like I, I grew up in an evangelical household where the Bible was read every read out loud every day. Um, I studied literature in a situation where literature still seemed to be, you know, intact and important. And then during my lifetime, all that's changed. And so I find myself quite interestingly, quite interestingly, between between two worlds. Uh, what what else can one say about this except? It is pointless to regret the past passing because, because this is obviously something that's happening and much larger than, than any intervention that you or I might, might engage in. On the, other hand, uh, on the other hand, one has a sort of duty to register, register these changes, I think. Um, you say that, but you, know, you, you, you have always worked in multiplicities, haven't you? It's, uh, um, you know, between languages... Uh, between cultures, uh, and even in your books, you enter all kinds of incredible territory uh, from psychoanalysis. You've been, you've had an incarnation as a, as a, a crime novelist, um, and uh, you know people find um, that there is a certain kind of loopiness to your uh, loopiness. As I, and, uh, I'm uh, quoting uh, from a review, uh, that is very appealing. Um, and what they find in your literature, of course, is that. You know, the one consistent theme is the situational, uh, that somehow people find themselves in situations that they uh, neither created themselves but can't seem to get out of. Um, mm. And uh, that, that gives, the way, gives way to all the irony and, and humor in, in your fiction. Um, uh, is this the purpose of fiction, you think, um, to describe this kind of absurdity? Is there even a purpose to fiction? Well, far be it from me to pronounce on purposes for fiction. You know, I mean, people can do what, obviously can do what they want, and it, and if they can excite us with it um, or, or instruct us, so much the better. Let, let me try and put some sense into, into my own work. Um, as I said, I grew up in a situation where, where, which was extremely intense. I grew, I grew up in a situation of an evangelical, charismatic religion household where people carried out exorcisms and uh, uh, had prophecies and read the Bible constantly. So this is clearly a situation which is both formative but also that you want to ex escape from, as it were. And And so... An enormous amount of my work, in fact, I would say all my work, is really about how the question of identity of the individual is created in a group. That identity is a thing you do together. There is nothing absolute about, <clears throat> about your identity. Okay, it's created in the group. And, um, and so one of the reasons why my fiction has, has looked at so many different areas is, is precisely to show this happening in different places, in different ways. For example, the Italian books are very much about, uh, you know, what does it, is, is the individual in, in Italy the same as the individual in, in the UK, the culture I grew up in? Um, what are the forces, what are the, what are the possibilities open to an Italian individual that are not open 
to somebody in the UK and and vice versa. You know how what are the what are the examples, the role models, the the habits, um, and so on and so forth. You know why is it that somebody like Margaret Thatcher is unthinkable in Italy, uh, and somebody like Julian Giulio Andreotti, the, the great possibly corrupt prime minister of, of the Demo- <laughs> Christian Democrat era. Why is he utterly unthinkable in the UK? You know, so uh, so again, these these books are very much about how how identity is created. You know, in groups, they could be families, they can be larger groups, and so on. And also, in the era you live in, because in a different era, I mean, it's clear. Recently, I've been writing about the 19th century, about Italian unity, about Garibaldi. It's clear that a figure like like Garibaldi really couldn't exist today uh, in the circumstances we're in today. So all my work is about that tension between the the self-realization as an individual, but but also the fact that that you're a product of of a group as well and of a language as well. You know, language is obviously crucial in the in the structuring of a group and a person. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that these are academic books, but but just that I'm I'm very aware of of those tensions. Hmm. And um, talk about let us you know enter this very dangerous territory of culture. Uh, you you mentioned culture earlier. Uh, a a yeah, lot let's of your try not you know, to say something that will lead to us being threatened with death or something. Yeah, uh, yeah well, uh, <laughs> and every, uh, a near everyday experience, it seems to be in our world these days. Right. Uh, uh, but, you know, the, the books that you've written on Italy, and I've, I've read all of them with great relish, um, uh, particularly fond of the seasons in, in Verona. Uh, mm-hmm. And you've, you've waded into, into, into exploring Italian life um, as, as somebody who's lived there, you know, um, uh, but I don't know, have you lived there as, on the margins? I'm not sure. Uh, but h- how much are, are these books an exploration of that idea of, of, of culture, whether, whether such a thing actually even exists? Well, let me say that I've lived in Italy for 40 years, okay? And uh, for about 36 of those years, uh, I worked in the university. Um, and that I came to have a, a role as a professor in a, a university and, and ran a university course and, and wrote articles for the newspapers and so on and so forth. So uh, I have sort of been involved in Italian life. My, my three children are all Italian. My, my, my ex-wife and, and also my present wife was Italian. Uh, so I, this is very much a total immersion, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what 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 came what happened was that I I simply started trying to understand uh, the way my own the way my own personality the way the way my own forms of behaviour were being obliged to change uh, one's own expectations of for example relationships in a job how you get a job how you continue in the job, uh, you know, all the kind of things that you have to negotiate when you do a job, uh, you know, you have to change because it's a different world and there are different expectations and so on and so forth. And so that that leads you to beginning to understand, you know, here you have this huge 
inertia or momentum, if you want, that goes forward century after century. Uh, I, I started reading when I came to Italy uh, contemporary texts or more or less contemporary post-war authors like Natalia Ginsberg or uh, you know Alberto Moravia, uh, Elsa Morante and so on. And then slowly I began to read back in Italian in Italian literature, you know, Berga, uh, Manzoni, Leopardi, and then further and further back, you know, Ariosto, and then, and, and then finally back to, to Boccaccio and Dante and so on. And you begin to see an extraordinary continuity in forms of behavior and, and, and ways of doing things uh, that clearly, I mean, they're not genetic, for heaven's sake. You know, you move an Italian to London and after a few years, they'll start behaving like that. Or the Italians have a wonderful expression, um, inglese italianizzato, uh, uomo demonizzato, or something like that, which just says, you know, if an English person becomes Italianized, you know, they're, they're even more demonic, as it were, than the local. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so the Italian books are really very much about that system and, and, and what it is, all its positive and negative sides, you know. Uh, and the relationship between the way that in, in the book Italian Life in particular, I'm constantly uh, putting side by side old Italian fables, mm. uh, the plots of Italian novels, and the situation uh, of working in a university. And you begin to see that, you know, that literature and life are not disconnected. The kind of stories uh, that are produced in Italian novels are different from the stories produced in American or English novels. Uh, and they're very similar to the, to the way one lives here. Um, we, uh, the next, uh, next question, I, I have, you know, just every time uh, one of your new books comes out, I'm, I'm, I'm grabbing it, uh, uh, partly as a, uh, you know, an act of, faith, of faithfulness. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, I, I must say that I have particular, so this is a bit of an indulgence question, because I have a particular love for two of your books, Teach Me uh, to Sit Still, and uh, what, my favorite of your novels, which is Dreams of Rivers and uh, uh, Seas, uh, which I thought very lyrical, um, uh, Teach Me uh, to Sit Still, I was reading to friends and we were literally falling off the chair in some parts. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, can you tell me what this tilt to India was uh, during that that? that period of, of, of your writing this book? Well, I had been to India <clears throat> for work. You know, I translated Roberto Calasso's book, Car, and I was invited to go to India. And this happened to me uh, at a time in my life which was a very difficult time. Um, a very difficult time, both physically with health problems, but, but also personally with, with marriage problems. Uh, and if we try to if we try to connect this with our conversation so far, uh, let me say that that India, if one is an individual, one's identity depends to a large extent on the environment you're in and the group you you're with and so on. India for me uh, was was simply a place of total disorientation. You know. Uh, where, where I couldn't couldn't really find who I was at all because the stuff going on around you when when you move away 
from that the sort of cozy world of in, intellectuals and conferences. Um, I remember I spent a long time in Delhi at one point. I decided to do what they tell you never to do in India, which is just walk around the streets for about three weeks. Um, it was a, it was a completely crazy experience, apart, apart from the heat. But. So, you know, the book Rivers and, uh, Dreams of Rivers and Seas is a book about disorientation. I was disoriented in my life anyway, uh, going through big changes. And, uh, and, and, and India, India really called to me on that. Add to that that I had very curiously, precisely at that moment, translated Kalasa's book Ka, which is about pre-Vedic and Vedic uh, thinking and mythology, both Hindu and pre-Hindu. Uh, so, so it all sort of fit together, and it was it was fun to to try and do something with all that. Talking about Calasso, uh, you know, so much of Italian literature has come to us who read in English uh, through your hand. Uh, people like Calvino, uh, um, and uh, Tabuki, Moravia, Leopardi, even Machiavelli uh, uh, recently. Um, can you tell me a, a little bit about, uh, this is getting off track a little bit, but you know, living writers that you actually translated, uh, you know, people like Calvino, uh, what was your relationship like with them? Uh, and what does it mean to tra translate a living writer as compared to somebody who is you know, in the distant past? Well, I think... It is very interesting, especially Calasso, alas, has, 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 has now died just a couple of months ago. And um, it, it's very curious, because I was still working on the corrections of a translation. And it's very curious when he's gone, you know, and I can't ask him <laughs> uh, where there's a problem. And I can't, I, I can very much remember and feel his presence, because Calasso had a very particular presence, a very a very singular figure. Um, but but now the decision's much more mine, you know? Like one of the problems of translating an author who's alive is that they can start bothering you, you know? <laughs> an author who's dead will, will not do that. On the other hand, they can help you. And and fortunately, Calasso um, had excellent English, but he also knew that, that my written English was, was, uh, was much more aware of... of of all the elusiveness of English that, than his was. So he was very, very um, supportive and helpful and, and basically just, just intervened when, when there was something difficult from a semantic point of view. You know? But the thing, about, the thing about, if I can just say quickly, Calas's work is all about, about myth and, and the myths of different, different cultures. And his position is, is that myth is always present. That there is, you know, it's not something from the past. That the present still works uh, in terms of mythological stories and so on. And and as a result of that, his style is a very strange mix of the archaic, uh, slightly Vatic, but but also extremely contemporary and often very abrupt and so on. And when I was first asked to translate Calasso, I, I saw at once that my own background with with Bible reading and with a, with the whole area of, of of English that we've already talked about that you know 
that awareness of, 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 of the past of English and the present of English put me in an excellent position to translate these books. So it, it was fun to do that. I mean, one, you can think about translation. Perhaps an easy way to think about it is what happens if I move this building that is typical of this culture, I don't know, the Taj Mahal or uh, the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you know? Mm. What happens if I move this to New York? What happens if I move this to London or if I move it to, 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 to Kuala Lumpur or, or, or to Bangkok, you know? How does it fit in? What effect does it have? What does it lose in losing its relation to the buildings around it, you know? Um, and, and, and how do I have to change the building a little bit to make it a little bit more congruent, you know, but, but not so much as to lose what made it interesting? So you, you could think of translation that way. Um, uh, and it, it's a pleasure when, when the building you're working with is both very particular, but also possible to work with, you know, and Calasso is definitely possible to work with. Well, Kalasu is uh, a very unique, distinctive note because there are so many acts of translation that are actually going on. Uh, he is a translator himself, in, in, in a sense. Uh, and, you know, that wonderful essay you wrote, Prajapati, uh, uh, deals with some of these uh, difficulties in, in a very sensual way. Um, uh, but it seems, as, as you were talking about those buildings, it's, translation is so much an act of transmigration, something like that. Could it be described that way? Yeah, but... Let, let's take the two extreme positions. I, the, the, the position that the publishing world wants you to believe is that everything is immediately, universally translatable and can be sold everywhere. So, you know, people will say to you, I believe every great work of literature can be translated everywhere, you know, and, and it sounds like a very noble thing to say, but at the same time, it means we can make a lot of money selling this everywhere at once, and it's always the same work of art. Okay, uh, so that's one extreme position. And of course, the other extreme position is, no, this work is totally embedded in its culture. It can only be understood in, in reference to the people around it and the, and the circumstances that gave rise to it. Uh, and so it can't be, can't be translated at all. Okay. Uh, and, and of course, the reality is that we read books from other cultures. Uh, if we're lucky enough to know the language, we like the book. And, uh, and maybe we think, let's see what we could do with this in English. And, and something comes out that's, that's, that's part, mostly the same, but also very different. Um, and, and really, it, it very much depends how much a book is locked into its own culture and self-referential to its own language, for example. If you have a book that, that is basically about the English language, Okay, um, or that depends entirely on making every world slightly different from what the English language is, but nevertheless understandable through that difference to think of Finnegan's Wake, then frankly, translation be begins to look kind of pointless. I mean, you can do a similar exercise, but it's hard to see what translation would mean. But with other books, with other books, usually, um, usually there's something useful to be done. Like you're perfectly right that Calasso, as he's working from all kinds of different cultures from the past, which he is translating in very much in his own way, 
And when I translated Calasso, he would always insist that I translate his Italian, that I don't go back to previous translations of the text he was translating from. And this was particularly like, I, the, next month we, we'll be publishing his last book, which is called The Book of Books, and which is about the Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, so for me, that was, that was very special because, as I say, I grew up reading the Bible. Uh, and there you have the problem you have the problem that he's constantly quoting from the Bible. The British people, or some British people of my age, perhaps know the Bible, uh, and and yet his translation is not, certainly not exactly like the authorized version, or not exactly. There are a million versions of the Bible, so it was fun, sort of mediating between exactly what he had written in Italian and what the uh, sometimes very famous. Uh, existing uh, translations of the Bible in, in, in English say. But there's no absolute with all this stuff. You do, you do what you can and you bring to it, I think what's, what's, there's no absolute, but, but nevertheless, the more you can bring to it and the more you've thought about it, then the, the, more, the more intense uh, and the more rewarding the book can be. So uh, the fact that it's not an absolute should never be an invitation uh, to incompetence, in, in short. Um, what you bring to it, uh, it one of the one of the uh, uh, things that delights me most, uh, uh, and seems to keep our friendship very animated for thirty years, although we've seen each other three times, maybe, uh, is the fact that that I read you everywhere. I think uh, that's everywhere. the same number of times that Dante Chaubert reads you. I wouldn't want to put our relationship in that. <laughs> Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, I'm able to read you, uh, as I said, everywhere. And, and uh, uh, so much you write about is about reading, how closely you read things and how intimately you, you, you read them. Uh, and uh, uh, so many of your essays are also devoted to their collections of them, which are an absolute delight out of my head and things like that. Um, Tim, tell me, where do you situate reading in our gadget-driven world today, uh, beyond uh, all these publisher surveys and statistics, which of course uh, say so much, but tell you so little. Well, it's obvious that reading is is getting a bit more difficult. You know, uh, human beings are compulsive creatures, and you put a mobile phone in their hands, and um, you know, a very large amount of their day is going to disappear um, with with checking their email and so on. And and I'm no exception to to that. If if again, if we try to link to what to what the conversation has been about so far, like if, if my identity is being formed by my family, for example, reading offers, offers the chance of expanding the things that are forming my identity. Right? So, for example, in me and my family, which was so biblical and so closed in the evangelical experience, the possibility to read novels, to read Tolstoy, read Dostoevsky, read Flaubert and so on, which my parents respected because they had that kind of middle-class respect that literature is good, even though they, they didn't really know the contents of what I was reading. So reading, reading for me was, was a chance of, of, of enriching and escaping from a closed world. Okay. And I've always, I've always remained close to that idea that, that, that reading can 
lead you lead you usefully out of things or give you a, a view on things. I, I think, you know, one of the questions about the way a person reads is whether they're always reading into their comfort zone, you know, like the way people choose the newspapers that give them the political opinion that, that, that they want to see reinforced or the political narrative that they want to have. Um, and a lot of people read books like that or, or just books that create a space that they're familiar with or create, for example, liberal opinions that they're happy with, but, but, but maybe not entirely congruent with the nature of reality or, or whatever. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's useful and important to be lured outside your, your comfort zone, you know. And, and I think the seductiveness of, of a good writer is his ability to, to sort of put, it, put it in a spell on somebody um, and bring them a little bit out of the place where they were. So, uh, you know, my, in, in, in the moments when I'm positive, and these moments are not, not all that many, but in the moments when I'm really positive about literature and reading and writing, I, I think of it as offering, uh, as offering the possibility to, to really safely, because you, you're never in terrible danger when you're with a book, or, or unusually, not usually, of, of being drawn into at least challenging your complacencies and so on and so forth, or, or escaping from them. You know, certainly for me, Calasso was very important in that way, you know, uh, of, of offering me new vistas, but, but other writers too, other writers too, of course. And can we now uh, uh, fall back? I'm sorry, the, the conversation is sprawling, but your work is like that, so uh, uh, I, I just have to uh, run with it. Uh, but can we talk a little bit about your latest book, The Hero's Way and uh, Garibaldi? Uh, and, uh, you know, what what drew you to this? I mean, I know there was a, a, a piece published in The New Yorker in 2007, I think, uh, The Insurgents. Um, but now a full book has happened. Uh, and Garibaldi is, in this age of political correctness, <laughs> in the age of questioning the nation state, uh, you know, where does he sit and, and what was his appeal to you? Okay. It's interesting that you think the conversation's sprawling because, again, to me, it's, it seems actually quite focused. So, so maybe um, we're, always, we're always talking about individual and community, um, and, and that is the case with, with, with Garibaldi as, as well. Uh, I should say very quickly that uh, remarkably, at school when I was 16, 17, for my special subject for A-level, I chose completely at random uh, the Italian Risorgimento, so the, the, the unification of Italy and, and how it became independent as a country. And, and so I knew about Garibaldi and the other major figures in the, in the Risorgimento, even when I was quite young. And then, remarkably, destiny led me through my wife to come and, to come and live in Italy, uh, and so on, where probably Via Garibaldi or Piazza Garibaldi or Corso Garibaldi is is a street, the, the most named street all over Italy. Okay, so uh, I had become interested, and partly the whole European Union experience and the Brexit experience, I'd become ex interested in you know the nation state. Uh, which of course is is being looked at very negatively now, 
as as we move to try and a sort of world global government through large organizations like like the EU or, or the World Health Organization and so on and so forth. Uh, but if one goes back to the 19th century into Italy, which was split up into a dozen uh, little states, very much under the control of the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Catholic Church, which was not simply an Italian phenomenon, of course. If we go back to the 19th century, uh, the liberal community at the time felt that freedom could only be achieved if a people was united and self-governing. Okay. Uh, they didn't believe that freedom was an inevitable product of a people being united and self-governing. They knew it was possible for a people to be united and governed by a tyrant. Okay, so they were aware of that. But they did believe that it was a necessary condition for arriving uh, at a state where people could be free, where freedom was understood as being able to realize uh, what abilities you had and being able to express the opinions you had uh, with, with a certain freedom. I mean, they weren't, they weren't stupid in any way in imagining any kind of absolute freedom. And the most amazing, uh, the most colorful, the most determined, and the most charismatic figure uh, in the Italian process of the Risorgimento was Garibaldi, who was at once, who was at once militarily an extraordinary figure of um, a, a man capable of leading armies of volunteers and and beating professional armies. Uh, but he was also, in his way, uh, uh, although this is often uh, debated, he was also, in his way, a thinker and a practitioner of freedom. He was obsessed with freedom, simply obsessed. The way he dressed, his private life, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, it so happened uh, that, that I, it just came onto my radar, in a way, uh, to think about the moment in 1849 when Garibaldi had been fighting for uh, the very short-lived Roman Republic, which in 1849 tried to free Rome uh, from the Pope uh, and to move towards a unified state, uh, th those, those ambitions and hopes were crushed by a, a huge French army which besieged the town uh, and cannoned the town into submission. Garibaldi refused to surrender, and he got together about four or 5,000 volunteers, and he tried to take them across Italy, northwards to Venice, where there was another, another free republic holding out. So this was a march of 630 kilometers, that's about 400 miles, zigzagging northwards through Italy, through uh, Lazio, Umbria, Tuscany, the, the marches, um, with, with lots of armies, French armies and Austrian armies following him. And, and, and I just thought one day, it just occurred to me, uh, why don't we, I and my wife, why don't we do that march that they did? You know, why don't we reconstruct it and talk about Italy today, the Italy we're walking through, uh, the Italy of, of 18, 1849. Uh, and, and talk about this adventure because it was a considerable adventure and it was also a question of you know what you could do politically at the time you know what people what kind of agency people had like today how much agency does anybody any of us really feel we have 
in the uh, very few of us are, are entirely happy with the governments and the situations we live in. Uh, what kind of agency do we have? You know, in Italy, you even begin to wonder if, if your vote is a form of agency, given given that we have a prime minister who is not uh, elected by parliament or even in any parliamentary party, but as it were, parachuted into us uh, when forces uh, of various kinds decided that we weren't behaving properly. So, um, so, so the book is about that, you know. So on the one hand, it's a kind of it's a kind of love love. Um, yeah, love declaration to this landscape and these people and so on. Uh, and on the other other hand, uh, a, a quite critical analysis and, and awareness of, 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 of both the situation in the past and the situation in the present. I mean, uh, you, you know, it seems very important as a writer to keep changing, uh, to keep moving out of your comfort zone as a writer to say, you know, how, how can I do this book? How can I put the present and the past together in an interesting way? How can I make it uh, seductive for readers, but also take readers to a position that they don't expect to be in, where the nation state maybe becomes something extremely attractive compared with, with what was going on before it and so on and so forth. So, uh, so it, was, it, it was fun. You know, it's, it's what I do as a job. Coming out of Garibaldi, and this is our last question, I, I really wish we could um, uh, sit and talk for a great deal longer. Uh, but um, coming out of this, of, of this experience, uh, encountering today, uh, you know, a, a culture that is screaming for historical justice, uh, um, and, and so many, uh, so much of literature is under scrutiny. We talked about Dante, and uh, I just remember that in 2012, there was a Italian human rights group that uh, called for his banning uh, because he was apparently an Islamophobe. Uh, now, what is going on, Tim? <laughs> what is going on, uh, seriously? Because some of us on this side of the world uh, read with consternation that uh, Mark Twain, Joseph Conrad, uh, none of these people are legitimate anymore. And recently, Cornell West, uh, 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 <laughs> you know, cried out that we are undergoing a, a spiritual catastrophe. Uh, can you uh, please try and uh, uh, capture this zeitgeist for us uh, as we continue? Well, I mean, you know, Dante, Dante's Commedia obviously draws on the Christian scheme of things where hom homosexuals, for example, are placed in hell. Uh, this is clearly, <clears throat> this is clearly unacceptable uh, today. Uh, you know, so what are we going to do? We're going to say all the qualities, all the thinking, all the reflection, all the culture in Dante is to be thrown away because the values of his time are not our values, okay? So if we're going to do that, then we move into a sort of delirium where we imagine that our own virtues are in fact absolute. The past is all inferior and... and uh, <clears throat> And, and to be disdained, okay. <clears throat> uh, and, and we assert what, what I'm always disagree with, that our, our identity is somehow absolute and absolutely right and, and the past wrong, okay. And this is a denial of the fact that our present position actually arises from the past and that Dante at his time 
was was considerably had considerably moved from previous positions that came before him. I talked before about how he shows pity for people in hell and how he respects people he meets in hell, which already, you know, already at the time the Christian church condemned uh, Dante's work as as not orthodox. Okay. So not to see oneself uh, in terms of a process that's been ongoing, uh, that you can talk about as progress or you can talk about simply as change, is folly. And it seems to me also that this is largely born of a situation where as you move away from a world where there were complex hierarchies uh, to do largely with religious beliefs or to do with the notion of separate roles, men and women, uh, people of different birth and so on and so forth. As you move away from that to a world of total total equality, hopefully, although, although we all know perfectly well that that's not the case, uh, you move, as, as the great anthropologist Louis Dumont said, into a world where competition is really the only way of relating to people. You're in a power struggle. And the biggest weapon in the power struggle at the moment is your virtue. One should always ask when people express their concern about victims and about so one should always ask whether the concern is really about the victim and born of compassion of this person, or whether it is a concern about asserting a position which improves my power in the modern world. Because most of what is going on is a power struggle. Okay, Where there is genuine compassion and a genuine attempt to, to rectify uh, uh, unhappy circumstances, who could possibly dispute the need to, you know, to defend any kind of minority. Um, but, but we should always be attentive to that question, whether what is going on here is a sort of delirium of, of self-assertion uh, or not. And, and I fear that very largely that's the case. I mean, it's certainly crazy to, to suggest that one, can't, that, that one can't benefit from reading somebody like Mark Twain, uh, the man of infinite humanity um, it's absurd but but there you go we live in we live in these times and i do think there's there's alas more of this to come, uh, more to come. jim parks uh we've reached the end of of our time uh but thank you very much and always great pleasure always so much empathy um uh, and thank you for wading through these little universes with me for this festival uh, and we look forward to having you here in person. I would love to be there indeed again. And thank you for all your generosity uh, uh, over the years and, uh, and sharp observations. Thank you. I wish you great happiness, my friend. Thank and you.